HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm joined by Washington Post journalist Laura Riley. We're going to chat about her ongoing coverage of the effects that COVID-19 is having on the food supply chain, including why we've seen a paradoxical rise in both food waste and and food insecurity, why the meat industry is being hit particularly hard, and the likelihood of impending food shortages in the U.S., Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Okay, so um, for weeks, we've been hearing about two major issues, you know, with regard to our food system. First of all, it seems like our, you know, the food system, the food supply chain is like top of mind for Americans for the first time ever, I have to say. (laughs) I have talked to supply chain experts who have never been rock stars a day in their life. (laughs) Yes. You know, so they are they are in the unique position of of being like inundated by people like me. The whole world is breathless to hear about <laughs> things like blockchain all of a sudden. So, yeah, it's it's a really weird, weird world we're finding ourselves in right now. I know. I mean, it's maybe like a silver lining because there are a lot of woes, but I get really excited every time. And, you know, I see like food in the A block on like Rachel Maddow or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so busy time for you, definitely. Um, as a, you know, a reporter for on the business of food. Um, but so, yeah, so the two main issues that I think started to get a lot of attention uh, a few weeks ago are the fact that we've seen simultaneously an increase in food waste, especially on-farm food waste, um, and a really big increase uh, in demand at food banks across the country, which I think most people, and they've I've been asked this a lot of times, it sort of begs the question of like, well, why can't we just get the food um, from the farm to the food banks. So before we talk about like that, that issue, I do want to, I do want to kind of like, uh, have you tell us a little bit more about like why there's been a big uptake in food waste on farms. Like why are we seeing vegetables plowing, farmers plowing their fresh vegetables right back into their fields? Well, it depends on the sector. So let's, I mean, let's take it sector by sector. So if you're Mm -hmm. talking about produce, um, this time of year, 
Mexico is our kind of salad basket. You know, that we, we, what we get in the grocery stores, by and large, is from Mexico this time of year. Um, Florida and certain parts of California that may have a crop right now, they have mostly targeted food service. So if you're talking about like Immokalee tomatoes, those perfectly round kind of, you know, globe irradiated tomatoes that end up on hamburgers everywhere, a lot of those just don't have any takers right now. They can't just, with, with restaurants closing, you know, having been closed or at, at nominal in 10%, you know, uh, capacity for the past bunch of weeks with takeout and delivery, those restaurants uh, have basically said no thanks to Immokalee tomatoes, and there's nowhere for them to go with them, you know? I mean, you know, Whole Foods, Publix, Safeway, et cetera, they already have a pipeline from Mexico. So we've seen tons, I mean, millions of pounds of, of produce disked back under in states like Florida because the supply chain avenues that they have had for the past couple of years don't work right now. Um, and I think that some of that is, you know, I mean, it's, it's tragic and certainly that's not what they want to do. And I've had countless people, you know, email me or call me and say, well, why can't we just have them send it to the food banks? Well, it's right. like, who's, whose trucks are those, you know, yeah. who's, whose infrastructure is that? So the farmers don't have a trucking apparatus to get their product to a completely different end user, you know? Right. Um, who's paying for it? Is it the U.S. government? Is it the food banks? So then you have the, the issue of the food bank. So I, you know, I talk to people in Homestead, Florida, and you know, some of these ag areas that are, produce a lot of product this time of year, and they've said, yeah, well, we, we did what we could do with our small, with like vans and stuff to take stuff to, to the food banks, but this is an ephemeral product that goes bad in a few days. They don't have the refrigeration capacity. They, you know, it's a lot of stuff you can't freeze unless you process it, unless you turn it into a, a finished dish and then freeze it. Mm -hmm. It's not something that uh, can just be put in the, you know, you can't take loads and loads of zucchini and stick them in the freezer, right? So there are extreme um, disconnects, you know, on the, on the need side and on the supply side. So how big of a, you know, just to kind of talk a little bit about how it usually works. So it sounds like food service. It's like a bigger part of the overall sector than almost like retail or anything you're going to find in supermarkets. Is that correct? Like more billions of dollars are spent um, on food, food for food service than anywhere else. Yeah. So starting a few years ago, we began to outsource the production of our food more than we did it ourselves. Meaning that starting, I think it was in 2017, it was the first year that we spent more money in food service than we did at the grocery store. So Um, Within that, there are certain categories where we spend almost all of our money in food service and almost none of it at home. And seafood is one that I think has been really, really um, decimated by by COVID-19. You know, we eat the lion's share of our our seafood in food service and especially the high-end stuff. So sea scallops, crab, lobsters, oysters. I mean, none of us eat oysters at home, almost, you know, but mostly because we're afraid of stabbing ourselves in the, in the palm, right? So we, yeah. we just don't do it. And so oyster, you know, there, you know, the past bunch of years has seen this huge uptick in top of the water column oyster aquaculture outfits all around the country as wild oystering has kind of fallen by the wayside. So all of those outfits have huge infrastructure costs and recent 
you know, build outs in the past few years and they don't have any takers right now. I mean, their business has fallen like 95%. Wow. Okay. So in addition to like there being most of the foods or like a bigger part of the food and the food system being slated for food service, the way that supply chain normally works is that you like, how does that work? So I'm a farmer, let's just say with produce or with seafood. So I am growing potatoes and um, does it, a distributor will come to me to pick up those potatoes. Yeah, and there may be a couple steps. So, you know, let's say you, you um, are a, like, let's say you, like you do sea scallops, you know, and you're in mm-hmm. New Bedford, Massachusetts, you bring your stuff in, it gets bought by a kind of a middleman, and then it goes from them to a distributor like U.S. Foods or Cisco, right? Mm-hmm. And those people distribute it to restaurants. So interestingly, so Cisco, U.S. Foods, all of these big mainline distributors, they have not historically had any relationship with, you know, Whole Foods or Giant or, you know, Safeway or any of the, they, they, they don't, it's a completely separate route for food. And so they were really caught without anything to do with their product. I mean, they were left with huge amounts of, in, of inventory and nowhere to put it for, for a big chunk of, of weeks. So yeah, so we have this very bifurcated food system where half of it goes to retail and half of it goes to food service and kind of never the twain shall meet, you know? So uh, there have been a lot of on-the-fly uh, innovations that have occurred over, over recent weeks, and hopefully that will continue apace, you know? I mean, we really right. we have a, a pressing need to reallocate some of the food that we have in reserve to places where there's need. So, okay. So there's different, just, I didn't know there are different distributors that mostly service food service versus like, let's say retail. Um, but, um, so, okay. So there is, so, so basically right now the farmers, they don't have distributors to be able to pick up produce or whatever from on their farm and, and bring it to wherever there is need because they, like you said before, they just don't have the infrastructure, um, to service that kind of distribution channel. Yeah. And if you're talking about uh, produce, it's refrigerated trucks, it's reefer trucks in every yeah. situation, you know? And so there's, this is a, a highly specialized, there's time sensitivity, there's temperature sensitivity. Um, it needs to, things need to be harvested when they, you know, especially if you're talking about things like Florida blueberries, you know, there's a finite window, they need to get picked right now. It's pretty much you pick everywhere because no one, it, they can't, um, they can't make enough money with the product to support their workforce. So they basically have just said, all right, we're just going to open it it up to, yeah, just come on in, do have, have a go at it (laughs) to to consumers, you know, which is, which is bad for everybody in the scheme of things, because we're, we're not um, super skilled and we often make, you know, we damage plants along the way. It's, it's super fun to go out for a half day and pick a couple gallons of blueberries and get some social distancing and some, some vitamin D, you know, and and all that, but um, it's not good for the plants. It's not good for the system. So why couldn't, you know, and, and food banks are kind of, uh, a separate issue because they also don't have the infrastructure, I'm assuming, to be able to pick up that kind of quantity of food and probably not store it, especially because there, you know, it's a lot of perishables that are, of course, being, you know, being 
go, go into waste. But why couldn't the, um, you know, like retail, right? People are like all of a sudden grocery shopping because <laughs> they have to. So why couldn't like the the system just sort of like shift and, and like UNFI or distributors start working directly with those farmers to be able to um, bring their product into supermarkets? Uh, well, in terms of produce, there hasn't been a huge uh, supply chain breakdown, you know, in terms of quantity. I don't think most of us have seen real depletion. I mean, there are a couple, there are exceptions. So bananas have been, you know, and sometimes have been in short supply. There are, there are holes, but by and large, produce has been okay, you know, okay. and mm-hmm. that's because our supply chain from Mexico is intact. Um, where we're starting to see real disruptions, and, you know, and we all know this, right? We've, this has been written about so much, is flour, yeast, uh, meat. We're starting to see big problems. And, and there, the problem is that a lot of the meat that's in the system that was slated for food service uh, is in freezers, but it's in formats that can't be used for retail. So let's just talk about, like, beef and pork. So beef may be frozen in, in you know, freezers all around the country, but it's in um, primal cuts, these huge cuts. So how do you get that format? You can't, no one's going to buy that, right? This is like, you know, way the more than it could piece. fit. Yeah, it could way more than could yeah. fit in your oven. So someone <laughs> has to thaw that out, take it out of cryovac, butcher it down into smaller cuts, repackage it. And the, precisely the people who are equipped to do that, who have the skill sets to do that, are the meat processing workers who are sick, who are absentee, who are, you know, not coming to work right now for a variety of reasons at the, at the meatpacking plants. So it's a labor issue in a lot of cases. So in the case of something like flour, a lot of flour, so the majority of flour in the country goes to food service. Um, the past 10 years, we've seen a real diminution in, in what, and partly because of our carb phobia at home, but <laughs> in, in what, how much flour we use at home. So it's bakeries, it's large-scale bakeries, it's Panera, it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's food service. Um, mm-hmm. That flour comes in a 50-pound bag. So who's, how are you going to make it profitable for that flour company to take all those 50-pound bags, cut them open, dump it back out, reweigh it? repackage it, get it back on different trucks. I mean, it's a huge endeavor in terms of labor and in terms of cost and who's picking up that cost. You know, it's very difficult to pass that cost on to consumers in a retail setting if you've taken a bag of flour that three months ago would have cost, you know, $3.10. And because of the incur- the new labor associated with repackaging food, you know, food service flour, it's now six bucks. Um, yeah. So yeah, so th- there are some some big... there's plenty of food in the system. I've been assured again and again, you know, across many sectors, there's lots of food. There are these hiccups in terms of either processing or repackaging. I think people also just imagine, I mean, again, because most people like, you know, except for you and I, people like us don't think a lot about where their food comes from and, you know, how it gets there. But I think there's just also this, this idea that like, um, well, you just reprocess it, you know, and the reality is like to change a line. I mean, my understanding, you make changes in like in a line and that is like millions of dollars potentially and years if, you know, depending on like the, the facility. So it's not quite, it's not, it's not very nimble. Well, and people, I think in the past couple of weeks, as, as we've seen all these meat processing facilities go down or, you know, close because of COVID outbreaks, um, it's easy to villainize 
you know, Tyson and JBS and Smithfield and all that. But I mean, the nature of the work, it's a precision, it's a hand uh, cutting environment where you're elbow to elbow with other people. You've got someone across the line from you three feet away and it's collaborative. You know, you make your cut, the next person makes the next cut, et cetera. And then this carcass gets broken down. I mean, it's, we, most of us don't really want to know how the sausage is made, right? You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's an un, unsavory thing. But right now, I mean, we have by most people's count, um, you know, I did a story yesterday that Tyson says pork production across the country is down 50%. I had an industry expert said, say that Tyson in particular is down 74%. I mean, they did kind of back of the envelope math and like this, you know, these three plants are down entirely. These other three plants are at, you know, less than full capacity. So this is, this is becoming a real issue. And, you know, the problem in that. Um, is obviously we may see some some gaps at the grocery store, but the bigger problem is that on the the farmer side, um, I, I talked to a guy today who said um, he heard Friday that there may be 12 to 15 million piglets that are depopulated, which is a euphemism for killed because mm-hmm. there is no supply chain for them. So they're they will be basically suffocated and probably composted, um, and that is because there is no no, nowhere to slaughter them, basically. And there's this huge backlog. Um, so, so, yeah, so, so we've got the, 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 you know, the, the obviously what we see at the grocery store is very concerning for all of us. And when we see a gap, it, it, you know, it causes us to have irrational purchasing behaviors. But perhaps the bigger problem is on the producer side that um, there's, you know, there, there's nothing, they, they don't have any, they don't have a recourse now. You go, oh, we'll just keep the animals. If you grow those, as piglets in particular, if you grow them several weeks beyond the, the size, you know, what they should be, where they should be harvested, mm-hmm. machines don't accommodate them. A slaughterhouse will not accommodate them. So you have nowhere to slaughter these animals, period, because of their size. They're, they won't fit. So it sounds like, and we, uh, we can kind of break this down, but it sounds like the, you know, the meat industry has been hit hardest is pretty safe to say. I mean, maybe dairy too, right? But like, certainly there are a lot dairy, of- Dairy had some pre-existing problems, let's yeah, just say. say. We had a, been you know, a dairy is a, it's a more complicated thing. And I'm not blaming dairy. I'm not, you no. know, in any way saying that they've, they've manhandled their business, but they, there have been problems with dairy for a bunch of years in that they are extremely efficient at producing milk now and there are fewer takers, you know, in terms of fluid milk. I mean, we eat a lot of cheese. We eat a lot of, you know, uh, we don't, we don't drink our milk anymore. We, you know, we, or, or we have it in like a Frappuccino or like a, you know, a shelf stable beverage or something like that. But yeah, in terms of just gallons of milk, we don't, we don't drink it the way we used to. And the system is built to forever increasing efficiency and there've been problems associated with that. So yeah, dairy's, dairy's hugely problematic right now. I mean, they're dumping millions of gallons of milk. Um, and, and one uh, of the things, one of the things I read is that like people don't realize food service, like, um, or school food, sorry, school food service. And so with dairy, especially, um, schools being yeah. out of. Yeah. So 7%, seven and a half percent of fluid milk goes to school lunches. And, and it's very easy to say, well, why can't we just pivot that to retail? Right. Why, why did early in this, why did we, why were we seeing gaps in milk? Well, food service milk is packaged in eight ounce, those little cute, milk cartons, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't work for food service. A lot of the, or I'm sorry, it doesn't work for for home use. And then a lot of food service milk 
is in these huge bladders that fit into, you know, with like the nozzle, like yeah. well, I, no one's buying that for, for home use. I mean, yeah. like, so there are, again, it's a packaging size problem. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the rest of dairy, uh, 50% of cheese and 60% of butter is consumed in restaurants. Um, yeah. which is why we go to restaurants, right. To like, so that we can like, Eat, eat a lot butter of with reckless and- abandon, right? Yes. We, we would never <laughs> cook with as much butter as we eat at a restaurant. So um, with restaurants closed, all of a sudden dairy, there's no, what, like, what do you do? If what your business, if your business model is you produce, you know, butter pat, like those foiled butter pats for food service, all of a sudden your business has fallen to zero. What do you do with that? Yeah. So, okay. So then, so that you talked about like the, you know, the meat, the meat industry, right? And that's definitely what you've covered a lot. And that's been on the, you know, quite a bit on the news. And um, when we talk about meat and we talk about Tyson also, um, cause they've been very front and center. Are we talking about red meat or does this include poultry? Like when, when we're thinking about the interruptions um, in the meat processing facilities, what does that pertain to? I think the most dire problems are with pork and chicken, and that's because of the life, uh, the, the length of life of those animals. So for chickens, you know, there are millions. If you disrupt a, a chicken, uh, you know, processing plant, you're potentially disrupting millions of chickens may not be able to, you know, they, they, like a single uh, plant can process a million chickens a week. So if that plant goes down, that's a million chickens you have to figure out what to do with. So that, that is hugely problematic. And because the life cycle of that animal is so uh, quick, you know, you can't spin on a dime and make different choices. Uh, pork too, you know, a single plant may kill, you know, 5,000 you know, more a day. Um, beef is a little bit different. Beef may be, there may be a little more wiggle room. Um, but also beef is less vertically integrated. When, when I say that, what I mean is that um, the beef industry, you know, 95% of the front end, the people who, uh, who birth those animals and have, get them through their adolescence and get them kind of to where they end up going to a feedlot, you know, in the Midwest, those are small mom and pop. Those are like independent farmers, right? So ranchers. And those people um, are looking at, inventory that they may not be able to move, you know, with these processing plant closures. So they can hold their animals for a while on the beef side. They can basically, if they're on a feedlot, they can reduce their rations to kind of slow their growth a teeny bit. If they're on pasture, like, woohoo, that cow gets a little more, you know, fun in the sun, right? Yeah. Um, But it means that those ranchers are holding all of their money in inventory and there's nothing coming in the door, you know, in terms of how they're paying their bills. So, you know, they're all pretty dire in different ways. Um, you know, I think that, that, that I've talked to a lot of people in uh, specifically in pork in the past couple of days. And I think that they are the most concerned that uh, the system is really going to break down. And, you know, in beef, obviously there are, there are problems. And we saw today, that you know, Kroger announced that they are are limiting the purchases of beef. You know, and and Costco did the other day that you you know that it's the first time. I think it might be the first time we've seen any kind of rationing in the United States since World War II, which is a pretty wow. novel and and terrifying thing. I think for a lot of consumers. I mean, Wendy's. We heard today that a fifth of their stores don't have beef right now. 
you know? Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're, we're definitely starting to see some hiccups, although I will tell you that I still am hearing from, you know, kind of agricultural, you know, economists and people who kind of are big picture folks that there is a lot of, that there's plenty of food in the system or plenty of animals in the system that the, that the impediment is really that processing plan is the, is the slaughter component of it. So that's the, that's the bottleneck. And then why you, you talked a little bit, you know, previously, but what's it like to work in a meat processing plant? Like why, why have these been sort of hot spots of um, the disease outbreak? Well, um, you know, I think we've had over 6,500 workers in, in these plants sick so far. And, you know, I, I, these are, you know, these stats are a little few days old, but I, you know, at least 20, 20 workers dead. Um, 79 plants reported cases. So it's because of density of workers in a lot of food. If you work at like, let's say a Unilever plant that makes knorr soup mixes, mm-hmm. um, you can spread people out. You know, it, it'll slow your line speed down. You know, it will, it will impact your bottom line, you know, to slow things down. But you don't, a lot of times you can spread people out. It's the nature of, of, lines in in meat processing where um it's very very difficult to to take people and spread them six feet apart um because you're doing your little thing and then the next person's doing their little thing and then you have things where there are hiccups where everybody needs to like hand palletize something and then also a lot of times with these plants you have people there there are break rooms or lunch rooms where people are kind of commingling or at the end of the day you go back to the locker room and you change out of your uniform and you put something else on you know you put your 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 day clothes on and you walk out so there's a lot of commingling that happens unfortunately in in these situations and you know i i talked to a uh, a, a, a huge pork farmer today and he just said we just need testing you know we just need testing so that these workers feel comfortable going back to work you know because we've got it like he's he was basically these are essential workers and for the american economy for for the american population but they need to feel comfortable going back yeah of course and i just don't really i just kind of is maybe i'm just not getting it but why you can't like when I, when i think about a meat processing plant it just seems like speed is a big part of it also so would would it benefit from slowing the line down and or is it just something physically about like the intricacy of the work that they have to do together that makes it impossible to really distance well, Sure. Slowing the line down would absolutely improve worker safety, improve you know, everything across the board. But speed is of the essence. That's how you make your, your you know, profit. Um, we've seen line speed increases across proteins for the past few years, you know, under the Trump administration. Like the, there's been a lot of lobbying to, to speed those lines up. Um, so, yes, it would absolutely help to slow the lines down. Um, but it still is, it's a lot of handwork. It's a different kind of, it's, it's a wet handwork environment where if you have a ton of PPE on, it makes it much harder for you to do your job. Um, so, you know, if you're talking about, I mean, it's butchery basically in a, in a, in a large scale. Um, right. So, yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing to do if you're, you know, kind of swathed head to toe with big gloves on, et cetera. So I think yeah. that it is, you know, some of that is, um, it, it, uh, it's difficult to get the job done um, with, with extra PPE associated with it. 
Yeah. And I mean, it should be, I mean, I feel like issues in with labor issues, especially in like meatpacking plants have been a problem for, but well before COVID. (laughs) Sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, gosh, there's so many watchdog organizations that have, you know, that have uh, made demands and so many kind of, you know, wonderful investigative, you know, journalism pieces about meatpacking, you know, because it's a lot of times it's, it's, it's workers that don't have a tremendous voice for themselves. Either they're not native English speakers or, you know, a lot of immigrant workers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily a group of workers that have um, a lot of clout. Um, and these are, you know, in the, com- in the, in the case of like JBS or something like that, these are massive, massive corporate in multinational corporations uh, with a lot of lobbying uh, yeah. Moxie. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a nice word for it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it's a, it's hard to, hard to kind of push back and advocate for, you know, better, better conditions. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Okay. We're going to take a quick commercial break, uh, to hear a word from our sponsors. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Representing 75% of the U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production, with over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. And we're back uh, on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Washington Post journalist Laura Riley about her coverage, um, recent coverage on the effects that COVID-19 is having on the food supply chain. Um, What about uh, in in terms of how much has kind of consolidation been a factor in why um, in the potential like overall hit to the, you know, we're talking about like meat um, has the fact that like really these, the, this industry seen like rapid consolidation affected the overall supply chain. Well, I think that, that since the 1970s and, and the secretary of ag, then Earl Butts basically kind of coined the, you know, get bigger, get out, uh, agricultural mantra. I mean, that's been something that has been the case. We've seen it through in dairy, certainly in, in meat processing, et cetera. And the problem with that is, you know, all these, right now, there's so much talk about resilience, you know, in terms of our, our food supply. And a lot of times that, that um, really having resilience entails, um, Redundancies, meaning, um, you know, having some produce being, you know, in a vertical indoor urban situation and some of it being in a suburban or exurban, you know, uh, greenhouse and et cetera, et cetera, so that you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. I mean, I think that that's something that we've seen. This is, you know, the dust, when the dust is settled on COVID 19, there will be a lot of questions about the system that we have and how how efficiency sometimes uh, creates dangerous um, vulnerabilities. 
So in the case of meat processing, if you have a single plant that processes 5,000 head of cattle a day, if that plant goes down, that's a huge percentage of the national uh, beef supply that, that is at risk. So the more smaller meat processing facilities you have, uh, the better in ter- from a consumer perspective, but also in terms of from, from a farmer perspective. So, you know, if you, if you have a small ranch and you sell, you know, whoever you're, let's say you sell to Nyman Ranch, if you have to, the, the closest processing plant to you is 500 miles away, that's a huge expense for you. That is very disruptive for your animals. It, the, the more smaller processing plants, um, in some ways, the, the safer the, the food system um, but as we know, like it's it's the bottom line, and and there are economies of scale. The larger, I mean, as we've seen with dairy, uh, the larger the dairy, the the more efficient and uh, the more remunerative. You know, so it mm-hmm. that's a it's a a problem that we have across you know across all sectors of our food system. Well, what about those? So so the farmers that are affected, um, or is it the companies, um, you know, at the, the, at the end of the day, they're going to like be a, take the hit or will it be the farmers themselves? When we think about kind of like vertical integration and the type of meat that they're, that they're processing. So for poultry, it's totally vertically, vertically integrated. So basically, you know, Tyson owns its birds. Um, so for pork, about 40% of it is company owned, you know, that totally, you know, from, from beginning of the, to the end of the end of the, you know, like the entire system of that particular animal is owned by a single company. And then for most, for beef, it's mostly not. Hmm. So, so there it's, you know, it's kind of a, it depends on where you are in the system. Um, you know, I, like I heard, I talked to, to producers today on the pork side who sell to Nyman Ranch or one of the kind of natural, you know, like nor hormone naturally mm-hmm. raised and they have not seen any hit in terms of their, you know, processing thus far. And they haven't, you know, seen a, a diminished orders or, you know, lower prices. So it depends on kind of where you are in the system. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, there, I've seen other people say, Oh, organic, you know, organic chicken or organic eggs have taken a big hit. So, uh, you know, it, it really it really depends on where you are in the country and kind of what your niche is for some of these things. Which was going to be my my next question was like when we're talking about like potential meat shortages um, that have resulted from these big disease outbreaks at processing plants. Are we talking about like you know the pork chops I'm going to get at my local farmers market, like in Union Square? Are we? <laughs> this is a very specific kind of industrialized, you know, meat production process that's being affected, right? Well, I think that if you're, if you are the kind of consumer who has, who has the focus or interest in buying, you know, like heritage breed, you know, naturally raised, yada, yada, yada. I mean, some of that is just, it's a socioeconomic, um, you know, whether, if you have the latitude and the the pocketbook to afford that kind of product, it's largely still there. So I talked to a, a, a pork producer today who said there's been a huge boon in regional and local butchers uh, processing your if you so basically there are consumers who are buying a whole animal and having them 
processed by a local butcher to their specifications. So this one producer who raises 700,000 pigs a year, he, he was basically saying, yeah, I never, I, I've never sold so many animals live to local butchers on behalf of specific families. So I think that a lot of people who are worried about the meat supply are taking matters into their own hands. But you have to have the financial uh, ability to do that, right? I mean, it's expensive. Um, so I think that in terms of like boutique meats, um, I th- the system is, is holding steady. Um, but what that means is that people who, who are lower income may have a harder time. There may be more gaps um, in, in that arena. Um, so in, in thinking about kind of some, some solutions that have been proposed um, to, to address a lot of these issues, uh, Trump issued an executive order last week relating to meat processing. What did this entail? Well, so basically, it was a in the Defense Production Act. Um, it was an executive order to order meat processing plants to open. And what I've heard from a bunch of people in that industry, they've said, "Yeah, you can order the processing plants to open, but you can't order the workers to come back to work." Um, so, you know, there may be processing plants that will open um, with a fraction of their workforce until there's until there's routine testing and people feel comfortable going back. Um, you know, he can say whatever he wants to say, but, um, the, 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 we're limited by how, how many workers are on that line. Right. Is it, was it Iowa, the governor who said, who, who is like mandating going back to work, um, and then threatening? Well, I don't know. There are a bunch of, you know, like Georgia has been bullish about everyone getting back to work. So I'm not sure, you know, there've been several. I thought, I mean, this is, I shouldn't speculate, but I, f- I feel like there was some like kind of really horrible mandate that your benefits would be cut if you don't go back to work or something like that. Wow. Um, yeah, well, yeah I, mean, that, you know, I mean, it could be confusing sure. my states, but um, <laughs> there's some like really dark things that are, that are happening. Well, Iowa, Iowa would be a, a, you know, logical one in terms of, you know, meat production for sure. I mean, pigs, it's right. a pig state. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So then, so, so there's an order saying you have to go back to work, but people are still like, I don't want to go back to work because it's not safe. Why yeah. do you, when, why do you think it is that this was one area where he did invoke the De- defense production act, um, and moved fairly quickly on it versus something like, you know, encourage or requiring like a domestic manufacturer to produce more PPE or something like that. Like, is there something, special about meat or like the food supply that really kind of invoked like this kind of action from him? Sure. So I think that, you know, Tyson took out a a New York Times, Washington Post, Arkansas Democrat Gazette full page ad last Sunday. John Tyson said, you know, the food supply chain is breaking and, you know, That might be a little bit of hyperbole, but it certainly got the president's attention. This is his base, right? The American farmers are are his base. And he's done a lot. If you think about all of the the MFP money in the past, since, you know, in the past two years, uh, because of the trade wars, you know, the bailout for ag, you know, he's, he is keenly aware that these are his people. And so he is very hesitant to to do anything that is going to really hurt them. And so I think that in terms of 
bringing those the, those meat processing plants, you know, getting them back open, I'm sure that, you know, Smithfield, Tyson, JBS, those are probably all big supporters of his. Um, and they're, they're enormous American companies. And then there's also this kind of perception that uh, the American public meat is, is somehow kind of sacrosanct. You know, it's this very American rah-rah product. Um, so we don't want to disrupt that. I think it would, in his mind or, or, you know, in a lot of people's minds, it would rock American confidence to have big gaps in terms of meat at, at the grocery store or even at, you know, at fast food restaurants. Um, so also lobbying. It's, to some extent, it sounds like sure. whether or not you're putting out, taking out a full page ad <laughs> sure. or doing it behind closed doors. Yeah. We have a lot of money um, for lobbying. I mean, okay. Those, those, yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes, we do in this country. Um, what about the repercussions on supply chain moving forward? So a couple of questions around this. Do you think that, um, I mean, first it sounds like there are anticipated gaps that are going to be happening with certain products. Is, is that correct? I think that from all the people I've talked to just in the past couple of days, if, I, if you'd asked me this three weeks ago, I would have said, we're going to be fine. And just in the past few days, I've, I've heard from a number of kind of smart people in the industry saying, yes, they anticipate some gaps. Um, you know, we also still have this really interesting thing in terms of, I mean, if you're talking about something like beef carcass utilization. So 23% of, that animal goes to food service historically and is it's the sirloins, the strips, the ribs, the tenderloins, the things that are too expensive that we don't buy at home because we're cheap and because we're not confident in our cooking abilities. So we have all of this expensive stuff across all different parts of the food system um, and no, no end user right now. I mean, obviously restaurants will kind of start coming back online, but we, we, it's yet, it remains to be seen whether they're going to be patronized at any, you know, high level in, in upcoming weeks or months. So, okay, so we have this huge glut of the expensive stuff where most of us are really just eager to get ground beef and chuck and, and the kind of retail cuts. So in, in pork, we, as a, as a country, we eat a huge amount of bacon but it's all in food service. Like we, most of us are not cooking bacon at home. You know, we, we yeah. want it on our cheeseburger at a restaurant, you know, French fries, we eat them out. So there are all these foods that are, um, so there are these disconnects in terms of, you know, how we eat. Um, so it remains to be seen whether we can work that out. If most of us continue to eat at home um, the majority of the time, and we will see, we just, we really don't know how it's going to play out. Um, we have to figure out ways of getting those surpluses in the system affordably to retail customers. Do you think that there is this opportunity? Oh, you know, by the way, um, has the food safety, has food safety been jeopardized in, in any way? Sorry, in thinking absolutely. about disruptions to our- Yeah, no, absolutely. Food safety. So there have not been any food recalls since February. So, and usually they're several a month. So, yeah. So, basically, the FDA and the USDA, they have made some changes by necessity. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, casting blame. But they have made some changes in terms of uh, how food gets inspected, how food, you know, labeling. Like, that's an interesting thing is that food that was slated for food service doesn't have nutrition labels on it, you know. because mm -hmm. So, if that food gets repurposed without getting repackaged, they've waived the necessity to have that nutrition labeling on it. And that's, a, it's an interesting thing. I've talked to all these food writers about like, 
do we even care about nutrition right now? Is this a moment where we just are putting nutrition off to the side? Yeah. And and I also kind of wonder. Just like sustainability, with, by the way. No, I know. Like, or yeah, like carbon sequestration just not, does not seem <laughs> front of mind right now. But um, I do kind of wonder if most of us, for the first time in many years, if, if many of us are cooking our own food and kind of start cooking from scratch and eating maybe a little less processed food and maybe a little less grab and go and kind of, you know, is there going to be a discernible uptick in terms of, you know, American health and well-being? And like, it remains to be seen. So I know we're all drinking more than we should be, but I also (laughs) think we may be eating more whole foods than we have in quite a while. So I think there's some interesting questions yet to be asked about, about, potential upsides from some of this and and how what the new normal looks like yeah definitely i mean i um i one of my questions is also like it'd be interesting if there is going to be a shortage of meat or you know becomes a little too cost prohibitive like will we start to god forbid eat more produce like that would be great right if (laughs) if we could well there's no doubt we're eating we're eating way more plant-based protein and I've talked to all those yeah. guys for, for beyond me to, you know, impossible, et cetera. Those, I mean, those numbers were already uh, fairly remarkable, you know, since a year ago. Um, you know, there, there were people a year ago who were saying, oh, this is a flash in the pan. This is this plant-based meat. It's never going to last. It's just a fad. Well, clearly that's not the case. So a lot of those have, have had dramatic growth since, you know, the beginning of COVID-19. Um, and some of that is that people feel a little less um, wigged out about eating plant-based meat. You know, I think that yeah. a lot of us have a little bit of like squeamishness about like, well, do I really want to be eating meat that was in a that was in a meat processing plant that may have had people that yeah. were sick with the virus and you know, and and I'm just going to say right for the record that there is no evidence that any transmission has occurred via food. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not saying that our food supply in any way should be. Uh, you know, that you should be skeptical of its safety. Um, but in a larger sense, yes, there's plenty of, of interesting food safety questions about, uh, you know, are, are uh, the people who regulate our food, are they paying as close attention because of this? And, and I think the answer is no. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Also, in terms of squeamishness, you know, it's, it's maybe, I'm just speculating here, but maybe it's just having more widespread visibility to what like working on a, you know, in a meat processing plant looks like, you know, at like a larger, more industrial scale, not like, you know, your artisanal butcher, right? Or however, I think maybe we might want to see it, but like these, something about, something about seeing that line, I, I feel like, might be discouraging people from or make, making them think twice about reaching for, you know, going to cook, going to cook meat. I, I think that that's already, that was something that was already happening. You know, I think that, that for, for uh, millennials or Gen Z who've grown up with the specter of climate change, they were already fairly willing to pivot to, you know, a little less meat reliance, maybe a little bit more plant-based meat or, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit more veg oriented or kind of, you know, meat as garnish, not as like center plate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's something we've seen in younger populations for a while. And this may hasten that for them. And then maybe also broaden that for, for other people who may say, okay, you know, I've, I've been eating more vegetables and it, 
it's fine. I like them or, you know, or I feel a little, I've seen, (laughs) or I've seen a lot more about, you know, the idea that all these animals are needlessly slaughtered because we don't have a process, you know, just like that there's cruelty built into the system. And, you know, I'm, I'm an omnivore, so I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying don't eat meat. I'm just saying that, that I think people are probably more aware than they've been in a long time about the process of how animals get to your plate. Absolutely. And that could be a silver lining to what has been just a lot of tragedy lately. Um, Well, we have to wrap up in just a bit, but um, I want to talk just briefly about any kind of other government interventions. There was an executive order that had to do specifically with, um, you know, getting meat processing plants back online. Anything else that the USDA has um, done to kind of intervene and either help bridge the gap between farmers and food banks, or just have they done anything to buy up some of the excess supply in our system right yeah. now? Yeah. So part, so part of the CARES Act was a huge bailout for, for different sectors of ag, so dairy, meat, and, and specialty produce. Um, and then in that, there was a $3 billion component of it that was going to directly buy products in those three categories to get them to food banks. And so the, the, as, we've, as we discussed earlier in the hour, that, that a little of that was um, the, the, what gums up the works is the transportation. You know, how do you get dairy, unused dairy from Wisconsin, say, to you know, food banks around the country? Um, and so there was a, a USDA meeting last week, I think, kind of a behind-closed-doors meeting talking about who might, be employed to do that transportation component, you know, in reefer trucks. And, and I think that some of those companies that we were talking about before, kind of U.S. Foods or Cisco, some of the big kind of mainline distributors, because they've been underemployed and because they have huge workforces, those are the very logical people to do some of this reallocation of, of food. Um, but then you really do on the receiving end at, the, at these food banks, you need a way to capture all of it safely you know, if it's frozen meat, you need a way to freeze it, you know, et cetera, and then a way to disseminate it. You know, I think the idea is that because of social distancing, you, you know, most of the country's, um, you know, pan- food pantries and, and those kinds of things have been, uh, or, you know, like soup kitchens, most of those have been um, discontinued because it's, it's impossible to do them safely, you know, with social distancing. So, the idea is at food banks that you hand, you know, through a wind, through a car window or into a trunk or whatever, a box of food for everybody. So there's a lot of processing that happens. So if you have a box that has mixed veg, some meat, some dairy, there's a lot of man hours that go into making that all happen and, you know, in a, with a cold pack, et cetera. Um, so all that stuff is kind of in the works right now, but there's, there's a lot of heavy lifting yet to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And it, will any of that relief? What about just you know excess excess food that the UFCA would take and then store? That's something that they have done. That's like you know something that happens regularly, right? Absolutely. Well, so I've heard from a lot of people that our fr- our freezer space nationally is um, at a premium. That a lot of freezer space is completely maxed out. Um, because of kind of hiccups in the system and because of trade problems. So there have been a lot of trade agreements that we have um, that have been unfulfilled because of COVID outbreaks and other, you know, places like China where the ports were all closed for a bunch of weeks and there were no port workers. So, thank, so 
meat that was slated or whatever was you know dry dairy, dry dairy like you know powder, milk powder that was slated to go uh, to China several weeks ago um, got hung up, and so we have all this stuff in our freezers right now. So th- we we need some uh, momentum in a lot of different arenas to clear out that space. All right. Um, well, anything, uh, and then any, sorry, any other potential like, um, bailout or supply, like support for this industry that you see that are, is potential, is pending potentially? Well, I, I, you know, every day I'm getting kind of, uh, you know, this Senator or that Senator, um, is requesting that, you know, the USDA come to the aid of their state's farmers. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of things that are happening and it's, it's such a, a work in progress um, that I think that there are probably going to be a lot of incredible innovations in terms of how to get food to where it's needed. Because I think there's, you know, with 30 million Americans unemployed, many of them who've never leaned on the system, who've never been food insecure in their lives, who don't know what SNAP and WIC are, there's going to be enormous need and, uh, and, and the potential for waste. So we're really going to have to be fleet of foot to get the food to where it needs to be. Anything else um, in your reporting, kind of, you know, looking at the landscape uh, that you see coming down the pike or that is, you know, particularly piquing your interest that we can be on the lookout for coming from you? Huh. No, I mean, I think that we've kind of covered, I mean, I feel like we've covered the full gamut, you know, and everything. I I wish I had a crystal ball. I mean, there's just, there's so much and it's happening so fast. And, and the reporting I did a week ago is now completely obsolete and wrong, you know? So, um, it's just, it's an, an incredible time to do reporting and supply chain because a, everyone's interested and B, um, it's moving more quickly than anyone could anticipate or predict. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say your reporting from WeGo is wrong. <laughs> I would say it's been, it's been fantastic coverage. Um, and not, I mean, all of, all of the reporting that you have done. Um, so I really want to thank you for, um, all of your hard work and for taking, uh, the time to come on the show and kind of further delve into a lot of these issues, um, with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. All right. Well, thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors as well as to our show engineer, Jeet Paul. Um, Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN network or wherever podcasts are found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Lee Ute and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.